So if I were to fill out a survey on myself, like if you asked me to, to give you all the characteristics of who I am, um, one thing that would be intricate to that is um, music. I love music. I love singing. Sometimes I get to come up here and play. Um, sometimes they let me do that. And um, I've always just been a music guy since I was a little kid. My mom would tell you um, I would overpower like I would sing louder than the radio. She'd turn it up louder and I'd sing louder. Like I've always just been a, a, a obsessed with music. Um, it's one thing that has stayed consistent in my life. Um, and so where we're at in our series, I, w- I want to give you a little bit of a music lesson um, and explanation to um, help to show you where we are um, in this series of the one story. And so musical tension and release. Um, that is, every song has tension and release. It's what keeps us in it. It's what keeps us listening. It's what keeps us interesting. Um, you know what musical tension and release is, even if you don't like know, even though you couldn't explain it, you know what it is because you listen to music. Most of you probably do. I've actually never met anyone that said they don't like some kind of music. Um, if you don't, that is wild. Um, there's probably some kind of special calling on your life if you don't like any kind of music. But Musical tension and release refers to the buildup of musical intensity um, that eventually dissolves and relaxes and, and comes back to the beginning of how it started. So for the listener, a moment of unrest, a moment of tension, and then a moment of unrest and a moment of tension, then a moment of um, release, a moment of um, resolve. Um, tension and release keeps music moving forward, keeps it interesting, keeps us listening so there are tons of ways that artists convey this in their music that keeps their music interesting, sometimes in the lyrics, sometimes in the uh, dynamics, which is like soft or loud, um, and sometimes in the melody, um, sometimes in the rhythm, um, and even, uh, oh, I already said, just like the, the words. But the most common way, and the way that every song introduces musical tension and release, is through harmonic, harm, what's called harmonic tension. Okay, so which is tension and release of or through chords and chord progression. So if you've ever heard somebody talk about key signatures, um, staying in a key signature is uh, uh, vital to hearing a good song. Anytime Rachel plays up here, she's staying in one key signature for every song that she plays. And so let me show you what what I mean by tension. So I can, I'm not a piano player. My wife is a piano player, and she's not here this week. Uh, I was going to have her do it. <laughs> but I have played a little bit of piano, so I know how to play in the key of C. That's what we're going to do. So musical tension and release moves through the harmonics of chord progressions. So if I start with a C, that is, I began the song in the key of C. And then I progress forward. I move up to E minor. Then I can move up to S, go up to G. And those all fit together. But if I just stop the song there... It's unresolved. You feel like un, un, uh, unfinished, unready. So after I hit that G, then if I want to resolve the song, I go right back down to the C. And now it feels finished, feels released. But right now, we are here in the story. I'm not going to finish it for you. <laughs> Might drive some of you crazy. <laughs> I was not trying, to, I'm not a piano player, <laughs> um, but that's where we are in our story. So we're in the story about how God's story is one, um, he's writing one um, narrative and how all the pieces fit together. And right now, as the people of God, they are in this um, feeling of tension, of there's a problem and we can't fix it ourselves what's the solution? What is the resolve? Where is the release from this tension? And so I could have, or we could have spent probably eight 
six or eight more weeks on Israel, but we took one week. Derek came here last week and explained to us the Abrahamic covenant. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of a trace of the story. Um, so stay with me. So we hit, we hit creation. We were together for creation. We learned that humans were made good and that the world was made good. And we were made to live in a relationship with him, perfect relationship with him. And then the fall happened. We learned that we abandoned our purpose. We learned that we need saving, that we need, and that we thought that we could be better authors of this world and of our lives than the God who created it. We also learned that we abandoned our purpose. But we also learned that God did not abandon us. And so in Israel, I'll call this Act 3. So there's creation, there's fall, then there's Israel. We, well, we got to hear about the Abrahamic covenant where how, how um, God committed to, to Abraham that he will um, use the nation of Israel, that he will use Abraham to deliver the world, to bless the world. He was blessed to be a blessing. And so as soon as after the fall, as soon as we sinned, God immediately set out to restore his creation. He didn't just leave it um, to be bad. He immediately started his plan of restoration and redemption. He chose Israel to be the medium through which he would enact his plan of salvation to the world. So in other words, Israel, like I said, was blessed to be a blessing by God to all of his creation, to all the nations. And so then he gave, here's where we haven't hit. He gave Israel the law. And the law was supposed to teach Israel how to live holy lives um, for a holy God and to depict to the world around them what it looks like to, uh, uh, to reflect the God that created them. But they failed over and over and over again. They failed to be a blessing to other nations because they were addicted to compromise. They were addicted. They would constantly veer off the tracks and worship other gods and veer off the tracks and change their identity and, and mistake their identity for who they really are. So they failed. And so God sent them into exile in order to wake them up from their sinfulness. And so God blessed, promised to bless Israel, but he also promised that if they did not obey his commands and fulfill their role as his people, then he was going to do something about it. There were consequences to disobedience. And so now, eventually, God allows Israel to come out of exile and move back into the promised land under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. They rebuild the temple. They re recommit their uh, covenant with God, and they start obeying God's commands. But despite their return from exile and despite their reestablished relationship with God, Israel is nothing like what they are supposed to be or nothing like even their former glory. The temple isn't as glorious. The political relationships around them are rocky. They don't represent God how they're supposed to represent God to the nations around them. And so if you asked an Israelite about their situation, they might have had great concerns and legitimate doubts about their future, about the fact that, is God going to use us? Is God going to deliver us? Is God going to take us out of this, out of exile? Doubts and concerns that would have only grown more severe when the Roman Empire showed up, taking away all of Israel's independence. Not to mention the fact that Israel slowly reverted back to living those compromised lives, turning to other gods, turning, to, uh, turning away from their identity as his people. And so then, last section of Israel, of Act 3, after the second intermission, we move into the prophets. We see the prophets. Uh, God gave prophets to the people of Israel um, to give them strong assurance of Israel's future, that to, re to proclaim that the Messiah will come, that God will save us, God will deliver us. There will be a suffering servant to deliver us from this low that we find ourselves in. And then there's 400 years of silence. No word from God, no, no hope, don't hear anything, no prophets, nothing. And that's where you find Israel, in that tension of what's, what's, what's going on now? How does this finish? How do we get released from this, waiting for God's redemptive plan to restore and resolve everything? 
unsure about their future, unsure, um, and they were waiting eagerly for God's redemptive plan to restore everything. And that's also where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in a similar tension as, as this. Now, I, I warn you to not just look at Israel as illustrations and examples, um, because Israel was used by God, Abraham was used by God to deliver the world. And so they are a legitimate part of the story that God used to, to get us to where we are now. But we can also look back to them and see ourselves, look in the mirror and learn. Often I'm reading the Old Testament. When I read the Old Testament, I see like we haven't changed at all. We're constantly turning and worshiping other things, other, other gods. You might not call them gods. We're constantly turning to worship other things. We're constantly forgetting our true identity as God's people, as a child of God. And when we do that, we find ourselves in this tension of, is God, where is God? Who is God? Why, why is this what I'm experiencing? When truly the tension is, is caused by our veering off, by our veering off of his plan or of veering off of who he is. Okay, so that's the tension that we're in. Finally, after 400 years of tense, uneasy waiting, Jesus finally arrives to restore and resolve, to deliver his people. But he wasn't anything like what Israel expected. The various sects or, denom- or denominations, that's S-E-T-C-S, of Judaism all had their own idea as to who the Messiah would be. These sects are like what you'll read in the Gospels, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, those kind of people. They all had different ideas of who Jesus was going to be or what the Messiah was going to look like or how it was going to come about. And so we're, our one story, the big four things are creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We're in redemption. And I'm tempted to just answer the question and give you guys theology of what is redemption. But the reality is it's, it's not a what, it's a who. Redemption comes through the person and work of Jesus. And so today, instead of asking what is redemption, we're actually asking who is Jesus? Who is, who is Jesus reveal himself to be in the four Gospels? And so my sermon is we're just going to read straight through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John today. <laughs> That'll be a lot easier. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we're going to be in Matthew 16. There's so many different ways that I could have gone about this because Jesus reveals himself in so many cool ways all throughout the Gospels, but we don't have that much time. And so we're going to be in Matthew 16 today where he answers exactly that question. Who is Jesus? Who am I? Um, so turn to Matthew 16 with me. Eventually, um, Jesus confronts his disciples, the 12 disciples, after performing miracles, um, and he, he delivers people and, and brings salvation and forgives sins, preaches about the kingdom of God. Eventually, he finds himself here um, being confronted by the 12 disciples and confronting the 12 disciples himself with the question, who do you say I am? And we'll see the response in Matthew 16. Read along with me. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on heaven will be bound in earth, or bound, bound on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. So the first question that we're asking today is, who is Jesus? <clears throat> 
who do you say I am? That's what the that's what Jesus asks of his disciples. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, Peter, the disciple that if you read the Gospels, you'll see he likes to speak up. He likes to be the one to 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 show that he knows something or that he wants to do something. That he has more faith. Um, he just he I kind of relate to him because I kind of talk without thinking about it sometimes. Um, and he steps up and he says, "You are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God." And he he gets it right. He's actually right. Um, in other words, he recognizes Jesus as the one in whom God's plan of salvation finds its climax. In, in this story that we're in, this is where the story finds release from tension. He recognizes that Jesus is the one who will restore and resolve everything. He gives the correct answer. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of the living God, and he is the one in whom God's plan, in whom God's story finds salvation. But even though Peter and the disciples get the answer right, they don't seem to really understand what it means, so they keep going for Jesus to be the Messiah. Peter certainly knew the definition, the definition of the word Messiah, but he didn't have a, really understand what God's plan was for the, his Messiah. A Messiah and Christ are interchangeable in the Bible, and it means anointed one. It means to be anointed, which or the one to be chosen by God to carry out certain um, jobs, certain tasks. Uh, in the Old Testament, that title was actually given to prophets, priests, and kings, all offices that God used in the Old Testament. And when someone was anointed, um, like uh, when David is, is, becomes king, he gets oil poured on his head. Um, and it's a symbol of that this guy is chosen, that God is, his favor and his presence rests on him to carry out a certain task. And for David, it was king. And for Jesus, it's all three, prophets, priests, and king. He fulfills all of these titles perfectly, and that's what he's set aside to do. He's anointed to be the prophet, the priest, and the king. And so the first one was prophet. What does that mean that Jesus is a prophet or the prophet. In the Old Testament, prophets were tasked with speaking God's word to people, with, with um, telling people of God's salvation to come, of telling people of who God is and that he's going to resolve this. That was the prophet's job, to give revealed truth to people, the truth tellers. And Jesus did this exactly. He taught the word to people. He, ta- he prophesied. And prophets also performed healings and miracles. Jesus did that too, did that perfectly. But not only did he just like, pr- like be a prophet, he was the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the word of prophecy. In the, John 1.1 1, 1 says that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He does not simply just speak the words of God as a mere human prophet, but he himself is the word made flesh. And so he perfectly fulfills this job as the anointed one, prophet, because he is the one whom the prophets spoke of, the one who um, God promised to deliver to them, the one that God promised would deliver them. So first is that he's a prophet, he's the prophet. The next is priest. As, anoint, as, an, as an anointed um, Christ, as the Messiah, he's anointed to be the priest, our, our ultimate high priest, if you read in Hebrews, uh, well, most a lot of Hebrews. Old Testament priests served as mediators for God's people. They were the people that could connect everyone with God. He, they did sacrifices on behalf of humans, on people, um, and people would confess to them. People would, uh, that, that was people's, that was uh, the people of Israel, God's people's only way to interact with God was through a mediator, a priest. And Jesus is our mediator now. Now we don't need a, a priest to do it for us. Jesus is our access to God. God, and or, or so, he, so we can now talk with God. We can now go before God boldly. We can now um, pray and ask God for things instead of having to go to a priest because of Jesus. 
Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So with Jesus as our high priest, our mediator, we can go before God boldly. We can, because he relates to us, knowing that Jesus has real compassion on us to bring us in the presence of God because he himself can empathize with us, can empathize how we really feel and how we really need God. So he's our prophet, he's our priest. And the last, the other office, the last office that was anointed in the Old Testament is the king. The king is the office in the Old Testament, uh, mostly best illustrated by David. David was given to Israel's people as a gift from God to be a type to show who Jesus is, but he wasn't a perfect king like Jesus is. And David was told that your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me and that in his line, he will deliver a savior. Uh, In Luke, we, we read this during Christmas time. The angel Gabriel told Mary that Jesus will be great and will be called son of the most high. Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And so God, or Jesus, is our prophet, our priest, and our king. He's our ruler. Like I said, normally these three offices operate individually, but not in Jesus. Jesus perfectly fulfills all of these things that God's people need. The prophets, the priests, and the kings were given to God's people for a purpose and a reason. And Jesus perfectly fulfills those for us. We still need a prophet. We still need a priest. We still need a king. We still need someone who is the living word of God, someone to proclaim the truth to us. And he came and proclaimed truth. We still need a priest. We still need somebody to bring us in the presence of God, to allow us to be in the presence of God. And we still need a ruler. We still need somebody to give us lordship and rule in our lives. And that is perfectly fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. And so that's a long explanation. Peter and the disciples knew the definition of the word Messiah, but they didn't really know what that meant or like how that would be played out for Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the anointed prophet, priest, and king. They didn't properly understand that. And so let's move on to uh, verses 21 through 23 in Matthew 16. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but humans' concerns. And so he gets rebuked. So first, Peter is given the keys to the kingdom. He's, he's told that he's going to be the foundation of the church, the foundation of God's new people um, as a result of Jesus bringing the kingdom of God. But now he's the opposite. When, when Jesus tells them what he has to do, what he has to die and raise and, and be killed by their people, he's, he's, he, he disagrees with them. He tries, Peter tries to rebuke Jesus. There's one lesson you learned today. You, it's, you can't rebuke God. Um, don't follow in the footsteps of, of Peter in this way. But Jesus rebuked him and tells him that he's Satan. He tells him that he's the enemy, that he's a stumbling block, that he has no mind for the concerns of God. Pretty intense rebuke, but also pretty intense misunderstanding. Why couldn't Peter accept the fact that he had to be crucified? Why did Jesus correct Peter so harshly? So Peter and the the disciples and all of Israel, um, along with them, were expecting a different kind of king. They were expecting Messiah to be a powerful and conquering king. And so when Jesus says that I'm going to be killed by my people, 
obviously the notion of that sounds like the opposite of what Israel wants. Understandably, they had lived under Egyptian rule, under Assyrian rule, under Babylonian rule, under Persian rule, and now they're living under Roman rule. They, they have not been their own people uh, a lot. They, they got to see the promised land. They got taken away from the promised land. They got to see it again, kind of, and they got taken away from it again. And they're sick of it. They're sick of, of other nations ruling, the, ruling them. They think that, and they know, that they are the people of the one true God. And so they're ready for a conquering king, someone to come to overthrow the government, to use military force, to, to destroy Rome, Rome with, with an iron fist. They're expecting a Batman like God, someone to come in and, and truly pummel and truly rule over the rest of the nations, to destroy the nations that are ruling, to destroy Rome. But the way of Jesus that we see, the, the person of Jesus that we see is not like that. That's not the true Messiah. That's not how it, it was. That's not how it is. The way of, it's not the conquering warlord picture that Israel or we sometimes might want. It's not the way of destruction. It's not the way of, of fighting. Jesus refused to conform to Israel's notion of what it meant, what they thought it meant to be their Messiah. He was his kind of Messiah. He was God's Messiah, his anointed one. And so what is the way of Jesus? The way of Jesus is salvation through suffering and service. The way of Jesus is the way of love and suffering, the way of loving enemies instead of destruction of our enemies, the way of unconditional forgiveness instead of retaliation, the way of readiness to suffer instead of using force, the way of blessing for peacemakers instead of hymns for hate and revenge. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. The way of Jesus is totally opposite of what Israel and what we often think that he is supposed to be for us. And it wasn't until much later that the disciples finally understood that salvation, understood that it came through suffering and service, not power and conquest. So now it's really easy to look at Israel and disciples and think they're a bunch of dummies. Like I think often I look at them and, and, and say, they had, they had the law, they had the Old Testament, they had the prophets, and then, and then they had Jesus, who is literally God, walking among them. How do they not get it? How do they not understand it? How do they not understand who Jesus was? But honestly, we're not any better. It might look a little different, but when it comes to who Jesus is and the role that he plays in your life and in my life, expectations often are out of line. This is what puts us in that tension. We veer off from who we are as God's people and we misunderstand of who our Savior is supposed to be. Just like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, it's easy for us to develop a wrong understanding of who Jesus the Messiah is. We recognize that he's the Messiah. He's the glorious Son of God, like Peter said. We know he's the one that we, that we come to worship, um, but maybe we just don't really know what that means, or we, or we fall out of line with what God really wants to be to you as the Christ, as the Messiah. Maybe we think that it means that he'll just take away all our worries and doubts. Everything will just be fine and dandy and super easy. Jesus will get rid of the people that we don't like. Jesus will just resolve all our problems just, just like that. And if he doesn't, then it's like, where the heck are you? What's your problem, dude? You're supposed to be taking care of this. I'm not sure what your specific misconceptions are about Jesus, but no matter what we think about him, we always kind of expect him to conform to our expectations, what we want. But that's not who he is. Jesus didn't, he's not our genie. He's, he's not Israel's genie. He's not, he didn't conform to Israel's expectations and he's not going to conform to your expectations of him. 
So who is Jesus? Well, according to Peter's words and Jesus' own confession, he's the glorious son of God and the crucified, the one whom God's plan of redemption finds its climax. He is our salvation. He is our redemption. And his way is the way of service and suffering, not conquering and power and conquest and destruction. So what does this mean for us? And uh, Jesus goes on to tell us. <laughs> then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life of me because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So what does it mean for us to align ourselves with what, with who the true Messiah is, with who the true Jesus is? We're called to follow in his footsteps. We're called to lay down our lives, to follow him to the cross. He said to pick up your cross. And now, I don't, when you hear this, I don't want you to think, I need to go buy a cross necklace and look really good for the world. Like, I need to go look pretty and, 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 and you know, you need to be a light to the world. But think about what the cross was. The cross for Rome was a symbol and a tool of destruction and an embarrassing death for criminals. It, and and they, they literally made them carry their weapon of destruction. On the cross, criminals died and were humiliated and would stay on the cross for people to see for a very long time. And he's telling them to embrace this, to embrace the cross, to carry it, to deny yourself and follow him to his death. He's the glorious one and he's crucified, the one in whom God's salvation finds its climax and his way is of service and suffering. And the way that we align our lives with that, with that, the true Messiah, with who the true Messiah is, with what true redemption is, is by laying our lives down for him, laying down our preconceived notions of who Jesus is supposed to be or our preconceived notions of how our life is supposed to be. But we're supposed to lose ourselves. You lose at the moment. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're supposed to lay our lives down. Sorry, a music guy. Um, to follow Jesus is to follow the way of the cross, is to die to ourselves, is to literally lay yourself down, lay down all your desires, lay down all your wants, lay down all your preconceived notions of who Jesus is, and follow him into death. And I guarantee you that the resolve to the tension in your life, as it is the resolve to the tension in this story, is when you lay your life down fully for Jesus. So every Sunday we celebrate this by communion. We remember this in communion. That Jesus came and was our redemption. That Jesus came and was the promised son of God. The one whom was, deli- was to deliver us and to give us access to God. To be the living word of God that is among us right now. To be our king. To be our ruler. And so as you take communion, thank him. Thank him that, that he's relieved the tension. That he has relieved that which is lost. That he's relieved, from, relieved us from, relieved the world from death that he has brought life to you. So to follow Jesus is to follow the way of the cross and give up our lives for him and for others, just like he did. And in so doing, I guarantee you that you will find tension in your lives will be slowly resolved as we align our lives and lay our lives down with him. Let me pray for you guys. Jesus, we thank you for um, your word and 
for being the word among us, for being the living word um, among us, God, and being our perfect prophet, our perfect priest, our perfect king, um, our ruler. And so, God, I just pray that um, we can apply this, that we can lose our life to gain real life, true life, full life in you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.